0: Welcome to the Cantina, you're just in time for Happy Hour. I'm Isabella Voss, coming to you live from the seventh circle of hell. Time flies when you're in the pit of despair, doesn't it? Who would have thought that a hellscape that began with roasted koala bears would be just the beginning of the live-action remake of The Twilight Zone? I was googling how to make a homemade macrame noose when I came across a few stories I thought I'd share. So, pour yourself a drink and get ready to detox on the rocks. Hey, misery loves company, right? Salut! Who here feels cursed? Exactly. Let's do the misfortune Macarena and throw some jewelry on it. The cursed amethyst, which now sits in a vault at the National History Museum of London, England, is a good old-fashioned story of, if it's not yours, don't touch it. Our story begins during the 1857 Rebellion in Kanpur, India. A cavalryman by the name of Colonel W. Ferris, came across a massive purple-hued amethyst in the Temple of Indra and just had to have it. He brought the stone back to England with him, and that's when his bad luck started. Vera started experiencing poor health and financial troubles. Girl, join the club. It is worth noting that the Temple of Indra was built to honor the Hindu god of weather and war. Now, Ferris's bad luck did not just follow him, but a friend of his committed suicide while, quote, in possession of the stone. Why he had the stone, I couldn't tell you. But it was all I could find for this particular friend. After this, Ferris' son reportedly began experiencing poor health and a struggling bank account when the stone was passed to him. I mean, maybe stop lending it to people, just a thought. Look, we all inherit wacky traits from our parents, but a cursed gem is a little much, yeah? After Ferris's son, the gem changed hands to Edward Heron Allen, who was super into mysticism and legends. He was known to be eccentric and was an expert in paleontology a la Ross Geller, palmistry, and was super into archaeology, especially anything Persian. Now, while he owned the stone, his crappy luck leaked into the lives of everyone around him. I dated someone like this, actually. The guy was a walking storm cloud. Now, Herod Allen had a friend who was a professional singer. That is, until they mysteriously lost their voice and never sang again. Now instead of, I don't know, throwing the stone into the sea, like the old brought in Titanic, or maybe returning it to the temple it was stolen from, he kept the gem in a box with his lucky charms, not the cereal. Eventually he did have enough as he saw the well of everyone around him getting slowly poisoned, so he throws it into the canal. Only ready? It found its way back to him. An antiquities dealer presented the stone to him, as this dealer knew that Heron Allen was into Eastern history and was a collector of strange artifacts. Yeah. Giving in, Heron Allen decided to keep the stone in a bank vault and instructed in his will that his daughter never be allowed to hold it. Now, the stone was donated to the Natural History Museum of London by Heron Allen's daughter after his death in 1943. An interesting year, to say the least. The donation came with a written warning on it, a disclaimer warning of danger for anyone who should come in contact with the stone. And the letter? Super chilling. Here we go. Cue creepy background music. Whoever shall then open it, shall first read out this warning, and then do as he pleases with the jewel. My advice to him is to cast it into the sea. Dun-dun-dun! Now, as a certified eye roller myself, it sounds a little superstitious woo-woo, doesn't it? Well, in 2000, the former head of the Natural History Museum of Micropaleontology, which sounds like teeny-tiny paleontology took the stone to the Heron Allen Society. On his way there, he was caught in such a horrible thunderstorm. He and his wife almost had to leave the car and make a run for it. The second time he took the stone to the Heron Allen Symposium, he became violently ill, ending up in the hospital and passed a kidney stone. This is like a really weird version of Ross Geller and Friends. (laughs) The stone now currently sits present-day, undisturbed, in the Natural History Museum's vault. Hot take? If it's not yours, don't touch it! This applies to objects, animals, body parts, and pretty much anything that isn't yours. Salute! It's time for Guess Who? No, we're not guessing which one of my many personalities currently has the mic. I'm going to give you a series of clues and you... Well, you don't really need me to finish that sentence, do you? Andiamo! 1. I am widely dispersed across six continents. 2. I've been around for 50 million years. And no, I'm not Betty White. 3. There are 1,400 species of me. And for my favorite fact, mostly because it hits a little close to home, without me, there would be no tequila. Ay, yay yay. Any guesses? Tequila, if you're unfamiliar with how it's produced, it comes from the agave plant. And agave plants are primarily pollinated by the deeply misunderstood, especially lately, mysterious, mesmerizing, and much maligned bat. Now look, I get it, bats aren't really a crowd pleaser, but neither are prunes until you're desperate to go to the bathroom. So before we write them off as being kind of creepy, let's learn a little bit about these winged critters. Bats are the only mammals capable of flight. The world's smallest species of bat is 29 millimeters. That's one ish inches in length. Now, have you ever seen a golden crowned flying fox? Google it, I'll wait. Side note, they have a wingspan of six feet. They are adorable and they fly. Now, the oldest bat on record, which was a Bransmiotis bat, lived to be 41 years old. I had no idea bats could live this long. These little beauties are fast. The Mexican free-tailed bat, being the quickest, can fly at speeds of 100 miles per hour in short bursts. As mentioned, there are 1,400 species of bats. So do they really all want to suck your blood? Don't flatter yourself, girl. Only three types of bat drink blood, and they exclusively borrow a little bit from cattle and livestock. Now these little guys do a lot for our ecosystem. Get this, up to 98% of all rainforest regrowth comes from seeds that have been spread by bats. They've also been called the vacuum cleaners of the sky, eating billions upon billions of harmful bugs just for us. Pests that destroy crops and insects that spread disease among humans are their absolute favorites. Now, they're remarkably clean, intelligent, gentle little creatures that really just want to keep to themselves. They're the perfect neighbors. The only thing that we need to do is leave them alone. They're quite shy and prefer to avoid contact with humans. Honestly, same. So why the bad reputation? They do constant thankless work that we benefit from. If they get sick as a result of being shoved in tiny unhygienic cages, whose fault is that? It's almost as though caging animals is a bad thing, isn't it? So one final note. Have you ever seen a flying fox eat a banana or a teeny fruit bat nibble a grape? Check out Detox on the Rocks podcast Instagram for a short but sweet compilation video of these bats enjoying snacks. You'll see bats in a whole new light. There are many, I'm happy to say, wonderful organizations dedicated to the sanctuary and rehabilitation of these helpful, bashful little creatures. Check out the show notes to learn more. Listen, anyone who wants to revitalize the rainforest, eat billions of bugs, and almost single-handedly help us make tequila possible, well, they're okay in my book. So raise your shot glass of tequila. My baddie-bat friends, this is for you. Salut! If a picture is worth a thousand words, what kind of a picture can we paint with some of the world's most beautiful words spread across any language? Here's my top 10 list of some of the most wonderful words in any language. One. Unia, English, beautiful thinking, a well-mind. 2. Orenda, Iroquoian a mystical force present in all people that empowers them to affect the world or affect change in their own lives. 3. Mudita, Sanskrit, taking delight in the happiness of others, Vicarious joy. 4. Komorebi, Japanese, sunlight filtering through trees. 5. Voerpret, Dutch. Pre fun, the sense of enjoyment felt before a party or an event takes place. 6. Jayus, Indonesian. A joke so poorly told and unfunny, you can't help but laugh. And I think I just found the title of my autobiography. Petrichor, English. The pleasant, earthy smell after the rain. 8. Hanayaku. Rukwangali. To walk on tiptoes across hot sand. 9. Fernweh. German. A longing to travel. Missing a place you've never been. Ten. Hiraeth. Welsh. A homesickness for a home you can't return to. Or never was. It's time for What's in Your Glass? And today we're making black Russians. Now this is a super simple cocktail that's kind of perfect no matter when or where. Here we go. It's two ounces of good quality vodka, one ounce of Kahlua, and ice. And that's it. (laughs) So what makes it a white Russian? Well, we still have the two ounces of vodka, the one ounce of Kahlua, but we add a splash of heavy cream. I recommend using coconut milk. Now this is an old school classic cocktail. Heads up, it is coffee liqueur, so you are gonna get a small hit of caffeine. So what's the difference between a black Russian and an espresso martini? Well, an espresso martini is 1.5 ounces of vodka, one ounce of Kahlua, and one ounce of espresso. Shake on ice and garnish with three espresso beans. So the main difference here is we're adding a shot of espresso. A black Russian is served on ice and a martini never, ever, ever has ice cubes in it. You shake it on ice and serve it in a chilled martini glass. It's pretty much the same amount of alcohol, but with more caffeine. For when you wanna make decisions you'll regret twice as quickly. I pride myself on sticking to a steady diet of plant-based foods, tequila, and cynicism. Everyone has their dietary needs and preferences, but generally it's safe to assume plants have an exclusive deal with photosynthesis, right? Straight out of that same episode of the Twilight Zone, let's chat about carnivorous plants. That's plants, plural. The Venus flytrap is by far the most famous, and no, they don't eat people, they stick to flies and other small insects. We are much more dangerous to them than they are to us. Among many carnivorous plants, we have the capensis, native to the Cape in South Africa and commonly called Cape Sundew. They're really pretty, with pink flowers and dewy-looking fuzz then there's the california pitcher plant and the round-leaved sundew as a matter of fact there are over 600 known species of carnivorous plants and all surprisingly different from each other in terms of how they trap either they trick the bug to falling into their petals they have a sticky almost like a fly tape some of them even use poison for instance the Attenborough pitcher plant grows up to 1.5 meters. That's five feet tall. Its pitchers, which look like champagne flutes, are 30 centimeters and able to capture and digest not just insects, but small rodents. Not surprisingly, this particular plant is native to Australia, the land of what kind of creature is that? and it is unfortunately on the vulnerable list of threatened species on the IUCN Red List of threatened species. There are over 140 species of this particular plant, all the way from Madagascar to East Asia and North America. As always, look but don't touch. Pretend you're in an art gallery or a strip club. Well, that's the end of my drink and the end of the show. Thanks for joining me in the cantina. And final thoughts? Let's save our outrage for things that are genuinely outrageous, like how we treat animals, the planet, and each other. Not just things we don't like or opinions we don't want to hear. Remember, I'm not that special and neither are you. Eco over ego any day. Keep your hands to yourself, keep your chin up buttercup, pour yourself a drink, and we'll see you next time in the cantina. Thanks for joining. Salut! This has been a Cat Flap production. In association with Not For Sale Media.